Please pray with me as we continue in worship by opening God's word together. Our holy and gracious God, we pray that you would take the words of your holy scripture and speak them with power to your people, that we may be your people, become faithful followers of your son, Jesus. We ask this in the name of Jesus and through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. I came across an article uh, written early last year called, Why You Never Truly Leave High School. Isn't that a great, uplifting, encouraging title to an article? The subtitle is even better. New Science on Its Corrosive, Traumatizing Effects. So we're going to start the new year off right with a nice, uplifting message. So why you truly never leave high school. Uh, There are a lot of interesting things in the article, uh, findings that they're reporting on, but two things in particular struck me. The first is how much adolescents base their identity on the opinion of others and what the others think of them. And the other part of it is how long the identity that we get in high school tends to stay with us into adulthood. Uh, The first one isn't a huge surprise, right? Of, Of course, we look to others to understand who we are. Even adults do that. Even adults kind of tend to shape their self-understanding based on what other people think of them, but, but it's even more pronounced in high school. And that kind of makes sense. Uh, the adolescent years, the teen years, are, are a really kind of hyperactive time when, when our self-identity is really being shaped more than it ever has in our life. It's really a, a super sensitive time of life for us. And of course, if you're in a high school environment where you're surrounded by your peers all the time, it's natural to look to them to understand how you fit into the world. So when you're asking these questions of identity, who am I? Where do I fit in the world? Of course, you're going to be bouncing that off of others around you. The problem is that it turns out that that teens are pretty bad at judging the really important parts of character. And that's not, not anything against teenagers or high schoolers. They're off on retreat, so we can talk bad about them or stuff like that. That's not the point. It's just saying that they don't have the full set of social skills. They're, they're underdeveloped socially. They're, they're not quite understanding how to relate to others yet, and, and able, especially able to read how others perceive them. So, for example, there was one little study that was just um, giving a series of pictures and asking people to identify the emotions that they saw in there. So, uh, there's a, one picture here, and uh, not this one, but the one just before that, please. Um, so they're, they're asking, yeah, this one. So um, they're asking uh, adults and then teenagers to describe the emotions that they see here. 100% of the adults see fear. All of the adults. But interestingly, the teenagers, ha- only half of them saw fear. They said things like, surprise, even aggression, anger, things like that. In other words, they're, they're missing the cues of the emotion that's being portrayed to them, and it's actually a different part of their brain that's being used. Rather than an, an evaluative part of their brain, it's more of a gut reaction part of their brain that's being used. So in an environment like this, you can see that people aren't necessarily reading others' perception of themselves right, and yet they are taking their self-identity from others whom they, not, they can't accurately read. So you can see this is a problem. But the, the other part about me, the, the part that was surprising to me was how long these labels that we get identified with in, in high school can actually stick with us into adulthood. So, so someone that was kind of labeled a, a jock in high school might consider themselves a jock or an athlete well into their adult years, whether or not they ever play sports again into school. And, and that might seem like a relatively harmless thing, and for the most part it probably is. But if you consider that that identity is shaped by often inaccurate and sometimes very harmful judgments of others, you can see that that can be a pretty destructive thing. 
And that's true and can be true even for those who do well in high school. So even for those who, who fare really well, say they're really popular people, that can even be destructive for them. So for example, a, a popular girl might have really high self-esteem in high school because her peers think well of her and she's one of the popular ones, she's one of the princesses in her school or whatever. But the problem is she's, her self-identity is, is being um, formed there externally and largely by things that don't have anything to do with who she really is inside. They don't have anything to, to do with her personality, her character traits, uh, her, her own judgments, her own personality. It's just based on what people kind of happen to think about her. And so if that's the case, if your identity is shaped externally by kind of chance occurrences and the fickle opinions of others, then likely after high school is over, her self-esteem is going to plummet, and instead of the high self-esteem and the popularity she had in high school, she's going to have fear and anxiety because there's nothing inside of her that has developed her self-identity. And that's the real problem here, is that our identity, we learn who we are in relation to those who are outside of ourselves, who, and those people don't really know who we are. So the question is, well, who am I? And the problem is that many of us never really get past the pattern of looking to other people to understand who we are. Today, we're going to look at an alternative to that. We're lo really looking at the question of who are we? And as we've kind of spent the time in high school, spent the time in early adulthood, spent the time in a, a later adulthood, some of us, and, and we have an idea of who we are. But today, we're, we're going to clarify what that really means for us, a powerful alternative to whatever identity we've been given or we've taken on ourselves earlier in life. So this morning we're starting in the book of First Peter in a series that we're calling Gospel Life in the Real World. It's going to make, the title's going to make sense as we move along a little bit here this morning. But today we're just looking at the, the introduction, just the first couple verses, because it's, it's shaping our self-understanding by the gospel. So it's, it's really laying out who we are in a powerful alternative to what we got in high school or earlier on in life. So we're going to read First uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 this morning. And I invite you to turn there if you haven't already. It's found in the Pew Bibles on page 1,200. Uh, so First Peter, and we're going to start in chapter 1. We're going to read it, and then we'll look at it together. First Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. The Word of the Lord. So this is the start of an ancient letter, and so it's following all of the, the normal patterns of an ancient letter. It, it first names the person who's sending the letter, so it's from Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and then it says who it's to, the recipients of the letter, to God's elect, those scattered in these different regions, and then it just gives a, a standard salutation, an opening, grace and peace. So it's a little bit of a Christianized version of that. But what's really interesting here in this start is how Peter is identifying his recipients. He's giving two labels to the people who are going to read this letter so that they can understand who they are with those two labels. So that's really what we're looking at this morning. We'll look at these two labels uh, in turn that Peter's giving us. The first uh, label is God's elect or chosen. So that's how he starts off in verse 1. Peter, 
an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect. Now, this is actually a huge theological statement, and there's a lot wrapped up in here, but we're just going to kind of set aside some of that. We'll just kind of scratch the surface and look at specifically what Peter means in, just in this opening by saying that. And he's actually going to use uh, three different phrases to qualify what he's talking about here when he says that we are elect or chosen by God. And those are all in verse 2. So we've been chosen, first of all, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. What this means is that we are part of God's plan from the beginning. So later on in, in chapter, uh, this same chapter, chapter 1, verse 20, he's going to say of Jesus Christ that Jesus was chosen before the creation of the world. But it's actually, the word translated there, chosen, is the same word here as foreknowledge. So it's actually, Jesus was foreknown before the creation of the world. God foreknew his plan in Jesus. That means before God even began to create, Jesus was part of his plan, and incredibly, you and I were part of his plan. We have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. It's a huge statement. The second uh, qualifier here is, is the next phrase there. We are chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. That means that God's Holy Spirit is alive and active in God's people, calling them out, selecting them, setting them apart to be holy, and then working in their hearts to make them God's holy people. So God's Spirit is changing us. He's making us worthy to be God's people. And then the third phrase there, we are chosen to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with His blood. And of course, that's the most complicated of the phrases here, but, but the basic point is that God is choosing us to be His new covenant people in Jesus. A phrase like sprinkling with someone's blood is kind of a, an, an odd thing in our culture. It may sound a little bit gory, but it's really pointing back to the Old Testament uh, covenant. After uh, God made this covenant with his people, Moses made sacrifices and then sprinkled the blood on God's people to mark them as God's people. It's sealing that promise for God's people. So this is saying that, that Christians, those who are, have put their faith in Jesus, are sealed with the blood of Christ. They become God's people through Jesus. And that really gives them a purpose too, to be obedient to Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. So this is what Peter's telling us here about our identity. He's saying that God the Father chose us as part of his great plan from before the beginning of creation. God's Spirit makes that plan effective by making us his holy people now, setting us apart. And God's Son makes us clean and, and gives us a purpose to be obedient, making us God's new covenant people. So right off the bat, as he's starting this letter, Peter wants his readers to know who they are. And he's saying, this is your identity. You are God's elect. You are God's chosen ones. And all of this is what's wrapped up in the idea of his readers being elect or being chosen. I really want us to get a sense, though, for, for the emotion of what's being said here, the, the emotion of what's being true. So, so if you could think back with me for a minute, for a moment to your time way back in uh, grade school. For some of you, this was not so long ago, and for others of you, this was at least a couple of years. Um, so I don't know if you, uh, you have had this experience, but uh, when I was in elementary school, there were a couple times at recess or gym class when they had all the students line up, and they'd have two captains, and then the captains were going to pick teams. And this could be a really anxious kind of a moment for people because it basically is saying this is where I fit in the hierarchy. The person who's selected first, well, they're the best one. The person who's sec selected second, well, they're the next best. And if you're kind of middle of the road, then that's where you identify. And, and the greatest shame in those moments is if you are the one who is picked last. 
Because that means that the, you're the very bottom of the totem pole. No one wants you at all. And probably you're thinking, well, they wouldn't even pick me if they didn't have to pick me. I am the last pick. I am the bottom of the rung. Now, imagine you're one of those people who's always in danger of being picked, work, picked last. The word chosen for you does not have good connotations because you're not chosen. When there's a lineup, you're not picked. You see the line get smaller and smaller and smaller, and then you're standing there alone. And, and so chosen is just a reminder of the shame of your rejection. And yet in the middle of that, Peter says, you are God's chosen. It means if you're one of those people who's always been an outcast, they've never quite fit in, never been selected first or second or third, but all the way at the end of the line, if you are one of those people, this is really good news because it's saying that, that you don't have to be ashamed. You don't have to be worried about being unwanted or unchosen, not picked. You are chosen. God wants you. And not just haphazardly, but God wants you and He created, he, before the creation of the world, He had you in mind. You were chosen according to the foreknowledge that God had from before He even began to create. He chose you specifically. You are His. You're chosen. If we really get what He's saying here, this will change our lives. Because, see, for many of us, We've been labeled all of our lives. We've been judged all our lives by other people. And for many of us, we've, we've carried that label with us. We, we've carried those, those identifiers with us. And, but those have been given by people who don't really know us. They don't know all the complexity of our lives. They don't know everything that goes through our minds. They don't, they don't know who we truly are. But Peter is giving us a different label. He's saying, the one who truly knows you the one who knows everything that's in your heart, the one who knows you better than anyone, the, no, the one who knows you better than yourself has chosen you. You are God's. He has chosen you. This is a huge thing to be chosen by God from the beginning of creation before he even created. He had you in mind. He chose you. This is an incredible statement. And for Christians, this is what we have to come back to. We have to realize that this is what's true of us. If you have put your faith in Jesus, if you are a Christian, this is what's true of you. God has chosen you. Now, this might seem a little bit weird if you're sitting here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus. You might think, well, what does that mean for me? Am I not a chosen one? Well, the thing is that God is calling you too. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you're here and you're wondering where you fit in this, God sent his son to reconcile the world to himself. He has you in mind too. This is a message that's available to everyone. God is calling you. He's choosing you too. So Peter, first of all, when he, when he looks at who these people are that he's writing to and, and the label that he wants them to take on for themselves, the first thing he wants us to know is that we are chosen by God. But then he gives us a second label. A second label he gives us is exiles. And this one's a little bit strange. We've got the lofty heights of what it means to be chosen by God, to be elect, to be His. And then we hear that we are exiles or, or we are foreigners living here. The word that, that my translation has as exiles might be strangers in yours or resident aliens or foreigners or something like that in your translation. But the idea is that this, this is written to people who don't really quite fit in. 
They might technically be a citizen of the city or the country that they're living in. They might have grown up there their whole life, but, but there's something distinct about these people so that they're, they're kind of non-citizens there. They're, they're living as, as foreigners, kind of transplants wherever they are in the world. And the other word here uh, that my translation has scattered, yours might have dispersion or even diaspora. It's just saying that this is God's people scattered throughout the world. So Peter's saying, first of all, that we are chosen, but then he's saying that now that we are exiles scattered about the world. We're living as foreigners in the world. Why would Peter describe Christians as exiles? Well, it's precisely because they've been chosen by God. So, so chosen sounds like a really good thing to us. Foreigner or exile doesn't sound like a very good thing to us, but they're actually tied together. We are exiles because we are chosen by God. Being chosen by God means that our position in relation to the world around us is now different. So before we came to our faith in Christ, we accepted the values of the world around us. We lived the same life that everyone else had. Our lifestyle looked the same. We were shaped by the culture around us, and that's what we took on for our own. But having come to put our faith in Christ through God's sanctifying work of His Spirit, we are now different. It means that our values aren't the same that we had before. Our values aren't taken from the culture around us. Our values are taken from Jesus, from the gospel. Our lifestyle is now different than it was before because we've been called to be obedient to Jesus. It's a different set of values, a different set of uh, values and different lifestyle that we now accept in Christ. In other words, Christians are going to look different than the people that they live with. I heard kind of a, a little bit of a gory um, way of putting this earlier, but just this past week I heard a preacher kind of talking about the distinction of, of being a Christian, and it's, it's like being hit by a Mack truck. You know, if someone is just walking along and then they've never been hit by a car, they're, you know, they're going to look a certain way. But, but once they've been hit by a Mack truck, you're going to visibly see a difference, right? You don't walk away from a collision with a Mack truck and look the same that you did beforehand, so Christians have this huge transformation that has happened in their lives. They are now Christians. Their lifestyle is different. Their values are different. So Peter has already proclaimed what the gospel means for identity. We are chosen by God. But now he adds to it that we live in the real world and we're going to look different from those around us. So we're chosen, but we're also people who are scattered all throughout, in this case, the Roman world. Places like Galatia and Cappadocia and so forth. And, and using the language of foreigners or exiles it really kind of reminds readers that, that we're never going to quite fit in. It's going to make things uncomfortable at times, but we're never quite going to be full citizens of wherever it is that we find ourselves living. We're going to be distinct from the people that we live around. And the idea of foreigners really plays this out well. People who come from a different country and move to a different country are often almost inevitably looked at with some kind of suspicion. So even in a country like ours, where immigration is a, is a huge part of our history from the very beginning, we still tend to look at people who are foreigners as outsiders. They're a little bit different. So, so in the mid-1800s, when a big wave of Irish immigrants came to the U.S., there was quickly developed stereotypes of who they were and suspicion of who these people were because they maybe talked a little bit different. Maybe they looked a little bit different. Maybe they gathered and kind of had some uh, different uh, events that they kind of kept from their previous culture, and they just, it looked a little weird. And of course, now, not too many people, at least I haven't met anyone that really thinks of Irish people as different than other Americans. Irish Americans are just Americans. They've been assimilated into the culture. But it happens today, more recently, with, with recent immigrant groups. And it's, so it's not uncommon for there to be some kind of suspicion toward more recent immigrants. So you hear things like, well, why, why can't they just 
act like us? Why can't they just be like us? Why can't they just learn English? Why can't they just have a yard that's like ours? But the operative word is they. It's the idea that we are the true citizens of our country or city, whatever it is, and these other people are here as foreigners. They are different than us. Well, Peter's saying that that's what it's like to be a Christian in the world. You might have grown up in a town your whole life. You might have never lived anywhere else. But because you put your faith in Jesus, your lifestyle and your values are not identical to those around, of the people around you. You are living as a foreigner in wherever it is that you live. So what Peter is basically saying here is that Christians are God's chosen people, but they're living as exiles, as non-citizens, as foreigners in the world. And this is really a key realization that's going to shape the whole letter that Peter is giving to these Christians. He's going to tell us how we are to live as Christians, how we are to have a gospel life in the real world where we are. And it's really as chosen exiles. Those are the two categories. We are chosen, but we are exiles or foreigners. Those categories are really going to shape what it means for us to live this gospel life in the real world. And that really has big implications for us as a church as we consider how we are to live together and how we are to fulfill the mission that Jesus has given us. So our mission as a church, we've said, is to make more and stronger disciples of Jesus. That's why we are here. Now, when we hear that we are chosen, uh, chosen exiles, we're tempted toward one of two different poles in relation to the culture around us. The one pole is just completely withdraw. We see that we're a little bit different, we don't quite fit in, and so we want to just separate ourselves and kind of say, well, that's the world, and those are worldly things, and then this is us, and we're going to separate off from them. And you can see that there's some attractiveness to this because it takes seriously that there should be a difference between Christians and those who are not yet followers of Jesus. So it, it kind of maintains categories nicely. The temptation is to separate off. On the other hand, the other pole is to just be fully assimilated into the culture that you live in. So it's, it's not comfortable to be seen as different. It's not a comfortable place to be. And so we just conform to the values and the lifestyle of those who surround us. So that's the other pole. And you can see that there are attractive elements to that. I mean, on the one hand, you just don't want to be weird. But, but even there's a good motivation possible for that too, that, that you want to engage with people who don't yet know the gospel, engage with non-Christians. But, so those are the two poles that, that the church kind of contend to when we realize that we are chosen exiles that can tend to complete withdrawal or to full assimilation and conformity into the culture. But the problem is neither of those really take seriously Peter's call to live out a gospel life in the real world, to really live as a chosen exile, living out a gospel mission. On the one hand, you might lose the mission. On the other hand, you might lose the gospel. So our identity as chosen exiles means that we are called to engage with those who are around us. So as those who have found life in Jesus, our purpose now in life is to help others find their life in him too and to bring God glory through that. So in short, we are called to be missionaries and live as missionaries in our context. And that's really what we've been trying to push for as a church as we rethink what our mission is and how we're going to be effective in making more and stronger disciples of Jesus. It means that we've got to live as missionaries here. We've got to live gospel lives in the real world. We've got to be a chosen exiles. So what does that look like in light of what Peter is saying here? How do you live as a missionary here in our context? Well, one thing that it doesn't mean, if we're really chosen exiles, it means that you know, the temptation that we might have to try to just 
be really cool or kind of fit in, take, the, take on the, at least the forms of the culture around us, that's not really something that's going to work. And I think you've kind of realized that as you, uh, as you look at the pastoral staff hires that we've made in the past five years, you can kind of realize that you've, you, you understand that you can't just try to be cool, and so you've not hired very cool people. And I think that's a really good thing that shows that you're taking this uh, seriously. We're going to look weird, and that's okay. We're, we're going to look different, and hopefully it's because of the gospel, not just because we're strange people. But what does it look like for us to be missionaries here in our context? I've got one little phrase that I'm going to start using uh, more frequently to try to uh, kind of center our thoughts around as we think of what it means to live as a, as a missionary here in our context. It's this. Uh, it's connected to the mission statement. So our mission is to make more and stronger disciples, and we're going to do that through authentic, intentional, gospel-deploying relationships. And that's actually on the front cover of your bulletin, too. You might have seen that earlier. But let me just explain, explain very briefly what I mean by that. So in, uh, authentic, intentional, gospel-deploying relationships. We'll start with the relationship part. Relationship, it just means that, that it's going to be through people. It's us interacting with others. It's not just us kind of sitting here and, and hoping people will come to us. It's, it's saying, yes, we're going to go out and we're going to build relationships with people who don't yet know the gospel. So that's the relationship part. It is through people. But let's go back to the beginning. Authentic. People want to see that you are a real person living in the real world. They don't want you to try to pretend that you're perfect. And besides, that's contrary to the gospel in the first place. The gospel frees us from trying to pretend that we're perfect and says, in all of our weakness, in all of our sin, God has accepted us. And that means that we have nothing to hide. Our identity in Christ, that we are chosen exiles. And that frees us to be authentic people, to have a real relationship with someone, an authentic relationship. It means that you can actually dig down into their life and open yourself up to being fully known because you are God's chosen. So authentic relationships, intentional relationship. In other words, this isn't just going to happen by chance. You're not just going to kind of happen upon these authentic gospel-deploying relationships. You have to set your life your pattern of life to actually be a gospel person, to, to pursue these relationships with people outside of the church, people who are not yet followers of Jesus. So it's authentic relationships, intentional in these relationships, and then gospel deploying. Because here's the thing, if you lose the gospel, you've lost the whole point anyway, right? Our mission is to help people find life in Jesus. These, these relationships that we're building, they're authentic, they're real, they're intentional. We're setting the course of our life to intentionally make more and stronger disciples. And they're gospel deploying. They're showing people who Jesus is. So this is really, this kind of, we're going to hear that phrase again and again. I'm going to try to use that. I'm going to try to build that into our vocabulary as a church. But the basic point is this. This is what it means for us to live a gospel life in the real world. I'm just trying to give you categories to think through. And of course, this isn't perfect. It's not easy and stuff like that. We're going to make mistakes along the way. We're going to learn together what it means. But, but the basic commitment is that we want to help other people find life in Jesus. That's, that's who we are. And really the starting point for that is realizing what Peter's saying. It's saying that we are chosen by God, and yet we find ourselves living in the real world. So we live gospel lives in the real world because we are chosen exiles. So this isn't an easy lifestyle. It's a difficult thing. The, 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 the idea of taking on a mission like Jesus has given his disciples, of going and making disciples, that's a difficult lifestyle. It's much easier to just take on the lifestyle and the values of the culture around us. But as Christians, we don't get that opportunity because we've been hit with a Mack truck. Jesus has come and, and impacted our life. The gospel has gripped us and it changes everything for us. And that really is the starting point. The starting point is seeing, I have a new identity in Jesus. 
I see now that, that I am chosen by God. I don't have to take those labels that I got back in high school from those people that don't really know me. I don't have to take those labels. I get a new set of labels. Chosen. Elect. And yet foreigners. Exiles. And from that point, we're able to set the course of our life to bring God glory by making more disciples of Jesus and helping more people to find him. The truth is that God has chosen us to be his people, and he has put us in the real world because more and more people need to find their life in Jesus. So may the gospel so transform us as a church as we live out our everyday lives in the real world that we can be a powerful testimony to the grace of God found in Jesus Christ so that more and more people will find their life in him. Please pray with me toward that end. God, I thank you for your grace. And I thank you for transforming sinners like us, calling us in the name of Jesus to be your people. By the power of your spirit, will you please empower us to be a powerful testimony to your grace. We pray this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen.